0: So we have been in this series of messages. Today is week 26. That means we took half the year to do this. And actually, in fact, a little bit longer than half the year because I took a couple weeks off in the summertime. And so, I mean, we're still in the summer, but I took a couple weeks off. And so we, we are now coming to the end. You know, 26 is a long time. Next week, what we're going to do is I'm going to finish our time in this series by giving a big, broad brush stroke review of the book of First and Second Samuel, because it was originally one giant document that then got split into volumes when we added it into book form but uh, we 're going to spend some time reviewing. The book of 1st and 2nd Samuel next week. And then I'm also going to do a time of live question and answer. So we've done this before. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with it in the past. And so I'll remind you again of how it works. At the end of my little time reviewing our passage, then we open it up and literally any question you want to ask, if other people in the room support that question, it will show up on the screen. And the question that gets to the top of the screen, I have to answer. And so probably your question is going to be about the book of First and Second Samuel and something to do with Goliath and David and something to do with King Saul and why God rejected Saul. But it's possible that some of you are going to go off script and ask me something like, when did the dinosaurs really live or, or whatever? And you're going to ask me something like that. And if it makes it to the top of the screen... With just a couple exceptions that I will notify the sound booth people about next week, I have to answer it. They have the right to remove it. And and so do you, as a matter of fact. If someone asks a question that you think is inappropriate, every one of you on your phone, on your app, will have a little trash can symbol and you can delete other people's questions. But there's also a thumbs up symbol and you can like other people's questions. And so it's sort of a crowdsourced question and answer time. Anyway, that's going to be next week. It's going to be a heap of fun. And I encourage you to, if you have a friend who's not big into church, next week would be a great time because we get to review a major section of the Bible. And I also have to answer whatever questions bubble up to the top. So uh, if you have a friend who's not all that interested in church, next week would be a great time for that. But today, today we finish up 2 Samuel, in an amazing way. Now, the interesting thing about how the end of 2 Samuel is structured is that it's designed in a very specific way to prove a very specific point. And I didn't go over this entirely with you last week. I kind of hinted at it two weeks ago. But the way it works is this. When you get to the end of 2 Samuel, the narrator has already told us all the stories the narrator wants to tell us about King David. But there are a few more illustration things that he has saved till the end. And at the end, what he does is he tells us a story about David making some wrong things right. And then he tells us a story of of, uh, David's mighty men who surrounded him. And then there's the section we look at today. And then there's another section where he tells us about the mighty men that surrounded David. And then there's another section at the end where he tells us about a a wrong that David made right. In other words, this is a structure that I haven't used this word in this context, but it shows up everywhere in in Samuel and in Old Testament and New Testament. The word is called chiasm. And basically, it's a, it's a way of structuring a literary something or other, usually poetry, but it's a way of structuring a literary something or other like a big arrow. So if you think about it like this, when, when the passage told us about King David writing a wrong, and then at the bottom, he tells us about King David writing a wrong, those are bookends. And they are bookends around this other section where David has mighty men, and then David has mighty men. And then that's bookends around this other section that we look at today. So for you and me, we usually want to end with the punchline, but the Hebrew people didn't work that way the Hebrew people worked in the way of parallelism. And so they would make this thing one thing, let's call it A, and they would make this thing at the end of the book, let's also call it A, and then they would nestle a B inside it, and then they would nestle a C inside that. And the point is that they were trying to draw an arrow of your attention to the point. And so for the past couple of weeks, I've dealt with the bookends on either side, but today we reach the true conclusion of the book of 2 Samuel, which is not the last thing in the book of 2 Samuel. It's this thing in the center of this hierarchical bookend thing that forms like this arrow. And so today we're looking at that. And in the section we look at today, as we finish up this book, the narrator gives us two things that David says. In one of them, we get a psalm that David wrote that is not recorded in the book of Psalms. It's only recorded here in the book of 2 Samuel. But then also after that, we get another thing that David gives us, and it is called David's last words. So we've got a lot of text we need to cover. If you uh, have your Bible ready to go, go ahead and open to it. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 22. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Some of it is going to be repetitive because that's the way Hebrew poetry works. They say the same thing multiple ways, but I'm going to try to highlight for you what those repetitive sections are really trying to say. So here we go. We're going to start right at verse 1. It says, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, remember, we're coming to the end of 2 Samuel here. When David was delivered from all of his enemies, he then had 40 more years reigning as king. So this this song is intended to take our mind all the way back to the beginning of David's time as king. But it also metaphorically covers everything about David's time as king and gives us a window to the inside to see what David's heart really was like as the king. He says this, verse two, he said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My rock, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people, you save me. I want to pause there for just a moment because there's, there's some words in there that are really important, One is this reference to a rock, a rock that David can hide inside, a rock that is his refuge. You see that? That metaphor shows up there. And David also uses this word stronghold. And what's really important for you and me to realize is something that I haven't emphasized up until now, but there is a very special word for a very special rock in David's past. The word is stronghold. And the rock refers to a cave. In fact, there have been multiple times where we were told in the story of King David that he was hiding in the stronghold. There are three very important places where the word stronghold shows up to refer to this with regard to David, and so I want to show you one of them and then remind you of two others. Here's this one from 1 Samuel chapter 22. So it's still chapter 22, it's just the earlier volume. 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2, and verse 5 says this, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, this is after David has killed Goliath. This is while David is on the run from King Saul. Saul is the king. Saul is trying to kill David because God wants David to be the next king, and Saul doesn't like that. And so David's on the run, and he hides in the cave of Adalim, or Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. This is the picture of David. He's establishing sort of a new kingdom based in a cave. And all these other people are flocking to him because they they think he's a great leader and they want to follow a great leader. But see what happens next. Keep going. It says, But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Heret. And so we saw way back when we studied this that the prophet came up to King David and said to King David, you need to go away from the stronghold. You need to go back to Judah. Judah is the land where the danger was. And God says, but that's also the land where your people are. I want you to go back to where the people are. And then the story progresses and David does some really amazing things when he, after he leaves the cave and stuff. But... The passage is clear. The cave was David's stronghold. And God, through the prophet Gad, told David to leave the stronghold and to go somewhere else. This shows up two other times, like I said. In one place it shows up, David is again on the run from Saul. And he's hiding in a cave, and Saul is vulnerable in front of David, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he chooses not to. And then the next uh, morning, David reveals to Saul what he could have killed him. And Saul then turns around and he says, David, you're more noble than I. And David says, yeah, I got that. And they, they make an oath with each other. David says, don't kill me. And Saul says, okay, I won't. And so they make an oath. And then immediately after they make that oath, the text tells us that David went back into the stronghold that cave where he had been hiding. And it shows up one last time. And this shows up a time when David was actually the king, becoming the king, and he found out that the Philistines were amassing an army against him. And we are told that David leaves Jerusalem. He goes to the stronghold where he can make plans for what he's going to do about the Philistines. And the interesting thing is that David three times in his life, was hiding in a cave that everyone called the stronghold. And here in this song, David sings a song and he says, God, you are my stronghold. You are my refuge. You are the rock in which I take refuge. Do you see the significance of that? This is King David who has literally experienced the rescue of resting in a rock. And he now says, God, it has always been you. It never was that cave. When you told me to leave that stronghold, I knew I could because it was never about the rock. It was never about the cave. It was never about that stronghold. It was always about you, God. It's always been you. I want you to write this down. The first attitude we're supposed to take from the life of David is a life that would say, I find refuge and confidence in God alone. I find refuge and confidence in God alone. Verse 4 says this, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. In the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. In this song, what you're going to hear is you're going to see, just like in many of the Psalms David wrote, you're going to see David with just real raw emotion. He's at his wit's end. God, it seems to me like I am on the brink of death. The cords of death were swirling around me, but I called out to God and he heard me. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he heard me. David is in this place where you can just really sense his deep, strong emotion. But there's also something interesting going on here. From the rest of this passage onward, we're going to see three big truths. And they're hiding in a lot of metaphor. So I'm gonna give you the truth first, and then I'm gonna read you the passage. And when we read the passage, then you will, you will see glimpses of this truth, but it's all in, in a bunch of metaphors, and I want you to know that the metaphors he's about to give us are not intended to be taken literally. God is not actually having a bunch of coals in his mouth, because Jesus tells us that God is spirit, and spirit doesn't have coals burning in his mouth. But that's one of the metaphors that's going to show up here. And so as we read this, you need to keep the bigger picture of the theme of what David is trying to get at. And here's the first thing you need to know, that from David's perspective, he understands that God is supremely powerful. And I can't, I can't overestimate that word. We use the word supreme like it's a description of a pizza. We use the word supreme as if supreme is just the most recent cool thing that I've experienced. But you have to understand that when David uses his words to try to describe God, he is describing a being who the word supreme isn't supreme enough. The word ultimate isn't ultimate enough. The word awesome isn't awesome enough. The word great isn't great enough. David is going to talk about a God that he understands is the literal top of the universe. And that's what he's trying to get at with these metaphors. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he... Was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. This picture we have is a picture of a God who is supremely powerful. A God who is so powerful that when you imagine the most powerful natural disaster that you can possibly imagine... A tornado wrapped in rain, an earthquake breaking open the crust of the earth, lightning pouring down from the heavens. When you imagine the greatest natural disasters you could possibly imagine, you have to understand that all of those natural disasters, all of that power, all of that immense glory that has shown up in there, all of that stuff would not even cover a thumbnail if God had thumbnails. All of that power pales in comparison to who God actually is. The first thing you need to know is that God is supremely powerful. The second thing you need to know, and this is where David is going to turn next, is that God is supremely terrifying to those he opposes. If you are ever on the wrong side of God, he is supremely terrifying. Take a look at this, verse 14. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot His arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning He routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from His nostrils. God is supremely terrifying to those He opposes. When he is against someone, he is against someone hardcore. But that's not the end of the story, of course, for David. He knows there's another side to that story. He knows that God is also supremely comforting to those who belong to him. David personally has experienced that. Take a look at this, verse 17. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me up out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You get this amazing picture of a God who, with David, David David and God are somehow on the same side, and God is supremely comforting to David. David belongs to him. And you get this idea, this picture that David puts there that is just beautiful, a picture of a God who delights in a person, a God who delights in a person and is willing to invade into that person's circumstances and rescue them from their hardship. Delight is a weird word, though. Because for us, delight is a thing that we have towards other things, but delight is also a thing that other things earn from us. Like, if a thing is delightful, it's because I like the way it tastes or how it works or how it operates. You know, I might like my car. I might think my car is delightful until that day when I get stranded with that car in the middle of absolute nowhere, and then all of a sudden that car is not so delightful anymore, right? Right? We have this weird idea of delightfulness, that delightful means that David must have done something to please God. David must have done something to make God delight in him. David must be better than most normal people because there are all these other people that God is against, but David, the Lord delights in David, he must be special, right? Well, if you've been tracking with us in this study in Samuel, you recognize that David isn't always perfect. I mean, David is only perfect in the Sunday school sense of perfect. If you only tell the one story of David and Goliath, and then maybe one story of David being a king, and you ignore all the rest of the stuff that's in the book, then maybe you could say, okay, yeah, David is perfect, but clearly he's not. He is such a flawed person. But I want to show you verse 21, because in this next section, David says something that is just literally unbelievable. Uh, track it with me. Verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. And have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And that's the way we hear those words. We hear those words with the lilt of a smug voice, a person who is bragging about their own success and their own righteousness. But there's another way to hear those words, there's another way. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. For I've kept to the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. All His laws are before me. I've not turned away from His decrees. I have been blameless before Him. I've kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. And you can read it slightly differently as long as you remember one specific thing. And I'll give you that specific thing by way of an illustration. Yesterday at the end of our prayer time, uh, we finished up our prayer time here. And then um, Diane told me that she was going to be able to come and do some cleaning in the building. And some of you know that years and years ago we paid Diane to do that, and then we ran out of money, and so we haven't been able to do that, but every now and then she's like, Jeff, I just want to come and and help out the church and bless the church and do some cleaning. And so I stayed here, and I wanted to be here when she was here, and uh, I wanted to help out in some way, but, you know, I didn't want to help out all that much, so... so what I what I did was I stayed here and then I greeted her. We got her some new keys and stuff to the building and and I took out some trash and I grabbed two of the big trash bags from out here and I carried them out to the parking lot and I went to the dumpster and I lifted up the dumpster lid and I tossed the trash bags into the dumpster and then I l- lowered the dumpster lid and I looked at my finger and there was like this black sludge goo on my finger right there. And it's like, "Oh, you know what I mean." It's like The problem was the key to get back into the building was in my left rear pocket. And so now the question is, the right hand has just been holding the trash bag. The left hand has now got all this goo on it from, you know, the the dumpster. And I'm like, this is terrible. What do I do? So I I tried to finagle a way to get my key out of my back pocket. And then I came to the door and I was able to get myself in. And immediately, as soon as I entered the building, the first thing I did is I made a beeline to that sink back there in our mech room. Okay, And there's soap above it, and I don't know who stocked it, probably Diane. It's amazing that we have soap back there because no one uses that sink ever. But I'm in that sink, and I click, and there's soap, and I'm like, yes! And I got the water going, and I'm scrubbing, and I'm scrubbing, and that black goo came off, and I was like, yes! I'm so glad that that stuff is gone, you know, because it's just gross. I don't know what it was, but I didn't want it on me for very long at all. And so I have a question to ask you. Am I a man with clean hands? It depends on when you ask me, right? I mean, because if you ask me for a span of 30 seconds, the answer was, no, I am not. But since then, I've spent a good amount of time cleaning my hands. I even took a shower this morning to get all of me clean See, here's our problem when it comes to things like what we just read in the Bible is we come from sort of the presupposition that David must be a righteous guy because he made it into the Bible right he must be perfect and so we come with that presupposition and now all of a sudden David says something that sounds arrogant and so you have to make a choice you have to make a choice. Either when David is arrogant, he's right because he's right, because he is perfect, and we just have to say, oh yeah, David, great thing. You know, he's a perfect guy. He claims he's a perfect guy. So let's just let him be a perfect guy. Or you have to make the other choice. And the other choice is, oh no, David's a liar. He's not a perfect guy. He must be lying because no one is like that perfect. And so what's going on here? But there is a totally different place to be. And the different place to be is to recognize that what David is talking about is he's talking about a thing that only happens in a person's life when that person has gone to God to be cleaned. When that person has spent the time in the dumpster and then got out and then went to the place where they could be clean and then could say, God has now responded to me on the basis of my righteousness. Not because David is perfect. Listen, I hate it anytime someone says the phrase, I'm not perfect, as if the rest of us didn't already know that. See, the point point is not to be perfect. The point is to be clean. And there's a difference. There's such a big difference. David says... Yeah, there were times that I I did some really stupid stuff, but I I didn't turn away from God. In fact, that's the thing that makes David different from Saul, that makes David different from any of the kings that came after him. When David found out that he had goo on his hands, he immediately went to get cleaned up. Unlike so many of the rest of us who would just be like, Oh, that. I'm just going to forget about that. I'm just going to ignore that. You don't pay attention to that. Look at this hand. But David, David, even though he fails, he goes right back to God. In fact, I think that's a better way of saying that comforting phrase. It's not just that God is supremely comfortable, comforting to those who belong to him. I think it's that God is supremely comforting to those who are after him, to those who are pursuing him, That's been our big theme this entire study, that God is pursuing someone who would pursue him back. And even though David goes through time and time again where he fails and he fails big, he's still a guy who turns back to God. He's still a guy who is after God all the time. And it's because of that that God is comforting to him. God delights in me, David says, because I delight in him. God relates to us the way we relate to Him. Let's finish up this section. I mean, I'm just going to read through the rest of this song. Verse 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. This is a good principle just to remember. God doesn't treat you as you deserve. God treats you as you treat Him. If you pursue God, if you long for God, He will reveal Himself to you. If you resist God, He'll let that happen too. Keep going. You, Lord, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them to the Lord. But he didn't answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people's. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives, praise be, to my rock. All those other people, they had to leave their silly, worthless strongholds because I've got my rock. And he's better. Exalted, be my God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man, you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Wow. I mean, David is just like all of the victory I've ever had. God, it's all been because of you. God, the only reason I've ever experienced any victory whatsoever is that I was putting my hope in you and they were putting their hope in something else. God, you are the rock. You are the refuge. You are the one who brings victory. And there's no reason for me to follow after anyone else or try to do anything in my own strength. God, it's all been about you. When was the last time you heard a person with extreme levels of power just at every turn say, oh yeah, I've accomplished some amazing things. And it's all because God, for some weird reason, decided to choose me for this particular task. There's, there's no reason He should have, but He did. He chose me for this task. And so as long as He stays with me, then these things are going to be done. But it's, it's not me. When was the last time you heard a powerful person just toss all the credit like that over to anyone above themselves? There's this um, question I want to ask you. And it's just simply this How aware are you of the comforting presence of God? David was on the run, he was hiding in a cave. David's made sinful mistakes, but he's still this guy who can run back to God, who still pursues God and finds comfort there. And I want to ask you, how aware of the comfort of God are you? Well, I want to finish this up. I want to finish this up uh, by taking you into David's last words, chapter 23. Verse 1 says this, these are the last words of David. And already you should know something important. If you have a Bible in front of you, notice the last word of chapter 22 that we just read and the first words of chapter 23. Let me just remind you, God has shown unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. God is showing kindness to David forever. The very next verse, these are the last words of David. Do you understand the contrast between the word forever and the word last words? Do you grasp that with me? This is a very interesting juxtaposition, don't you think? That immediately after we reaffirm God's everlasting eternal promise to David, the very next sentence is, David's dead. So let me, let me remind you of what he said before he died. Because you don't know someone's last words until after they're dead, right? You have to wait until they die to know they're the last words. So this is David's last words. Reminder, he's dead. He's gone. Yeah, God promised an everlasting promise to David, but he's dead. So what is this? Keep going. This is the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High The man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. Just pay attention real quick. That was in quotation marks. The last words of David have already started. He's the one who talks about himself like that. And you can read it from the perspective of, you know, arrogance. But I think you can also read it from the perspective of someone who is utterly amazed that God has chosen him for something. It says verse 2 the spirit of the lord spoke through me his word was on my tongue the god of israel spoke the rock of israel said to me when one rules over people in righteousness when he rules in the fear of god he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth if my house were not right with God surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire but evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns which are not gathered with the hand whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear they are burned up where they lie those are his last words it's a weird way to end his last words right these thorns, these evil men are like thorns burned up where they lie. Weird way to end his last words. Unless you remember that the people in Israel didn't care about the punchline being at the end of the story, did they? No, at the beginning, David is talking about the amazing fact that God has touched his life. And then at the end, he talks about this terrible tragedy that evil people are being burned. They're, they're tossed aside. And in those are like bookends. And in the middle you get David saying God spoke to me. And he told me something. And in the middle we hear what God actually says. Now there's no other place in the book of 1st 2nd Samuel where we found out that God spoke directly to David. Remember, we made a big deal about this a number of times where it was like David he, he approached the priest, he consulted the priest who was with him, who gave him the word of God there's never been a time in the text where we are told that David heard from God directly, but here, in his final words, in his last words, he is telling us something he 's letting us in on a secret, and the secret is that, oh yes. Sometimes the Spirit of God has spoken directly to David and therefore through David. Yes, in fact, David was a prophet. God was speaking through and to David. And so as we see that, there are three layers of meaning that I want you to draw out of this with me. The first layer of meaning is the obvious meaning. That's where we shoot right to the center and we say what did God say? What did God say to David through David to us? Let's just find out what that is. Well, let's look in the middle. There it is again. It says when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. When there is a leader who leads in the fear of God, that leader blesses everyone around them. Okay, that's the that's the first easy lesson. God speaks through David to give us this lesson. And it it bears out because when Saul was leading, he wasn't following God. He wasn't in the fear of God. And the people weren't blessed. When David leads, he is leading under the fear of God. And the people are blessed. And so we've got this general principle about leadership. Nice practical way to end the book, you know. General principle about leadership. When the person in charge fears God, then everyone around them is blessed. There's a lot of lessons I could draw from that. Like say, for instance, hypothetically, if you you and I were ever to have the opportunity to choose a leader over us. We would want to make sure we chose a leader who understood what submission was all about. We would want to make sure we chose a leader who, if they weren't, if they weren't in submission to God, they at least understood what it meant to be in submission to other people. You don't want to have a leader who doesn't know how to follow. It doesn't work well that way. And so, if we we're ever in that situation, that's a good point of application for this passage. But nonetheless, that's just the easy surface application of this passage. There's a second layer of meaning that I want you to get to, and it's this understanding that David is a prophet. He's not just a king. He's a prophet. That means he hears the Word of God and he speaks the Word of God. This is an endorsement of the entirety of the book of Psalms. If you ever read the book of Psalms and you're wondering, why am I reading these songs from the dude named David? You know, what's the big deal about that? He's, he's angry at this place and he's happy at this place and he's trying to get these people killed in this verse. And then he's trying to not get himself killed in this verse. And it's like, you want to ask the question about what the Psalms is all about. And actually this right here is giving us an insight. God has spoken to David. He's not just a king. He's a prophet And there are all kinds of things you're going to find in the Psalms that go way beyond David's life that he could never have known about. But as you read them, you recognize you're reading prophecy, not just a song. But there's a third layer of meaning in this final section, in these last words of David. And it comes in that specific concept. These are David's last words. And I want you to understand that in David's last words, he says this. Surely, if my house were not right with God, he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. David, in his last words, says this, Surely, he would not bring to fruition my salvation. David, in his last words, says he is absolutely convinced in God's eternal covenant to him and his salvation. And then he dies. What are we supposed to do with that? That's like me saying, hey, listen, I just found the elixir of life. I just learned how to make the elixir of life. I now can heal anyone of any disease anywhere in the world, and I can sustain people and give them youth and life all over again. And you're like, wow, that sounds amazing, Jeff. And then next week you hear that I'm dead. Right? Something is wrong with that picture. Something is wrong with that picture. But here is David, and he says, God has made with me an everlasting covenant. And it's his last words. The thing you need to take away from this is that the everlasting covenant God made with David was not about the physical, flesh and blood David that was writing or speaking these final words. The everlasting covenant that God was making with David was a covenant through David, a covenant that was going forward from David, a salvation that would be produced from David, not just. For David, from David on into the future. See, God was predicting through this word of prophecy right here at the end of this text, in David's last words, God is predicting that there is an everlasting king who is still yet to come. An everlasting king who is going to bring salvation for real. An everlasting king who's going to be a lot like David, who's going to be in the line of David, who's going to be one of these people who fears God, one of these people in whom the Spirit of God speaks, one of these people who can rescue people around him, one of these people who brings blessing to the people around him, one of these people who is himself both prophet and king. He just hasn't shown up yet because these are David's last words. But the prophecy continues. David is the model we learn for a future king. Now, as we finish our time in this text, there are just a couple things that I want to say. Next week I'll give you a a big summary of all the lessons we've hopefully learned during this time. But today I want to be real simple. And I just want to come back to the whole main idea, the reason I called the series The Pursuit to begin with. Just come back to something really simple. In the earliest part of the earliest pages of this big two volume book, a woman named Hannah wants a child and she seeks God and he blesses her with a child named Samuel and Samuel inside the environment of a high priest named Eli who has long since lost his passion or awareness of God Samuel gets a whisper of a voice from God and he seeks God and he finds him and becomes the voice of God for the people of Israel But the people of Israel decide they don't want the Samuel voice. They want the voice of a warrior. They no longer want to trust God alone. They now want to trust an earthly leader. And so they don't pursue God. They pursue a king. And Samuel says, all right, I'll give you what you want. And he gives them King Saul, who ticks every single box. He's handsome. He's tall. He is from a good family. Man alive. This guy, Saul, he is going to save our day. There's only just one problem with Saul. He's entirely selfish and can't get him himself off of himself. Oh, and there's another problem. He's also a coward and will hide in the luggage when everybody is trying to find him, to anoint him to be king. But he ticks the the other boxes, and so we'll choose him. We'll make him our king. They didn't pursue God. They pursued a king. And the king they pursued didn't pursue God. He pursued his own best interests. And so finally, finally, God has to say, through the words of Samuel, this verse that we've seen more than half of the weeks, Samuel thirteen fourteen says, But now, Saul, hearing this from Samuel, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And Saul was not one who pursued God, but David was. And so God was pursuing David who was pursuing God who was pursuing David who was pursuing God. Because God is hungry for the person who's hungry for him. God is looking for the person who's looking for him. God is pursuing the person who will pursue him. God wants relationship. He doesn't just want soldiers or representatives. He wants relationship. And so David unlike Saul, was a person who, despite his flaws, would pursue God. And that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for me. I want us to be people who take after God, yes, but I also want us to be people who are after God, who are pursuing him with our lives. And David's last words, as recorded in the book of 2 Samuel, are great, and I love them but I also really like David's last words as recorded in 1 Chronicles. These are David's last words to his son Solomon. Chapter 29, 28, verse 9. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. This is the lesson I want you to take home. It's the simple promise that if you seek him, he will be found by you. Because God is on the hunt for someone who's on the hunt for him. God is looking for someone who's looking for him. God is pursuing someone who would pursue him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. I've written this little kind of paragraph thought at the end of your notes. It says this. Whether I'm hearing God's voice or not, whether I'm in the palace or with the sheep, whether I'm on a throne or in a cave, whether I'm a leader or a follower, whether I'm facing a giant or confronting an inner sin, I will be a person after God's own heart. I will pursue him. That's what I long to be true for me and that's what I long to be true for you. No matter what, no matter what is going on in this world around you and no matter what position you find yourself in, let's be people who pursue the God who pursues us back. Let's be people who respond to the God who's searching for someone who would respond to him. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.